turn to Second Thessalonians 2, as the kiddos head down. Really is great to see you visiting with us. Here we preach through books of the Bible, often here, sometimes we preach on topics drawn from Scripture. We have been preaching through the letters to the Thessalonians, and we've preached through 1 Thessalonians, and now we're in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. So, we're going to talk about the end times this morning, the day of the Lord. Um, so, you're welcome for that. We'll define, we'll define the day of the Lord more thoroughly in a minute. You don't need to be a genius or a scholar to follow this. It's okay if you don't know the details. Um, those of you who have been here can think back to last week's teaching about Christ's judgment of sin from 2 Thessalonians 1. And with that in mind, it's a pretty graphic picture. I didn't hear it, Mike, but I'm assuming you, I'm sure you did it justice. With that in mind, uh, let me open by asking you, how you feel about that. And maybe you ask this question too, Mike. You read these passages about Christ the vengeful judge coming and slaying the wicked. How do you feel about that? Anxious, somber maybe, scared maybe, calm, excited, question mark. I'm not sure any of those words fit quite right. Uh, Consider an illustration. As we open. So, I taught high schoolers, and there's this, there's this substitute teacher thing that you deal with as a teacher. You're gonna be gone, you need a substitute teacher, and I wanted good substitute teachers. So I remember you had this like online platform through the district, and you had, you could, you had a good list and a bad list. The teachers have a good list and a bad list. If you put a sub, there's, you know, I don't know how many subs in the system, you put a sub on the bad list, and whenever you go in and say you're going to be gone, they they will not be able to sub for you. This is fantastic. You also have a good list, so if you have an opening, those are the people the system calls first. So I wanted all the best substitutes, like all of the teachers, wanted all the best substitutes on my good list. Now, substitute teachers, it's, it's a... Uh, it's a hit or miss sort of thing, if you know what I mean. I say often, substitute teachers, paras, assistants at schools are either the most, like the salt of the earth people who choose to voluntarily spend their time doing this thankless job, or they're not that. <laughs> they need cash or something. They're like three weeks removed from the students. Anyway, anyway. If you want to keep the good substitute teachers, you have to, I think, just absolutely annihilate your students if they treat the sub poorly. You must come back and punish them for disrespecting the sub, because if you don't, the next time that sub comes back, they see that sub, they know they disrespected that sub last time, and that the teacher didn't do anything about it. They'll walk all over that sub, that sub will hate it, And then that sub puts you on their bad list. As in, don't ever tell me when Mr. Carter needs a sub, because I don't wanna, don't wanna do it. So all this to say, I told students, baseline was two hours of detention for anything. If the sub writes down your name, if you sneezed funny, or looked at them funny, if your name is written down, you're getting two hours of detention, and then, you know, the worse the crime, the worse the, 
punishment. So it's a disproportionate punishment, but I had a goal in mind. So one day, one day I was absent, one particular day. I wasn't sick. I think we had a like an ultrasound appointment or something. Joe and I did. So I'm gone, and in the middle of the day, I received this slew of emails from from my para, the helper in, in my classroom, who's there with the sub, saying that this group of students has just totally gone Lord of the Flies, <laughs> Hunger Games style, in this, in this classroom. And they're going berserk, and this para's going berserk. I, there's nothing, I, I don't know what she thought I was going to do at that moment, I can't do anything. So sure enough, I returned the next day, I investigate, talk to people, everyone at the school knew. Like, they, they saw me, they're like, Joel... I'm like, just tell me what happened. Investigate, investigate talk to the principal, because some of the students got kicked out eventually. So I go to this class in the middle of the day, and I have this list of five boys. These five boys. When class time arrived, the students, the 30 or 35 students, walk into class, and they're all just, just somber, like, like sheep before the slaughter, they're walking in. They don't look at me. The five boys are, are terrified. I think, actually, I think two of them didn't even show. Didn't even show up to class. So, the rest of the story doesn't, doesn't matter. I assure you, I, I'm sure I didn't dispense justice perfectly, but they paid. They paid, and that, that didn't happen again on that level. Um, it was kind of a mess. But the resolution doesn't matter. Here's my point. How did those 30 students feel as they walked into class that day? Judgment is coming. I had followed through on the crazy two-hour detention rule before, so they knew it was coming. The sinners, the five sinners, are terrified, as they should be. Uh, but what about the rest of the students? The students who had behaved well. Some of them had watched this explosion the day before and they decided to do the right thing and not jump in and participate. How were they feeling? How were they feeling as they stood there in that situation? Today's passage, I think, speaks to that question for us. So my analogy breaks down in a million ways very quickly. I know, I know. Paul's listeners are feeling out of sorts about this kind of thing. And Paul's going to try to correct those feelings. They're feeling out of sorts about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And Paul's going to correct those. And I, I hope that as he does, it helps us come to a, a biblical countenance or feeling about the end times and, and what's ahead, just as the Thessalonians hopefully did after they received this letter. So, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, and then we will dive right in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. We have much to be thankful for this morning, our church family here, the edification and the joy we have together. The, edi- the joy we have this morning as we celebrate with with these who are getting baptized, and as we consider Christ together, and now as we learn from your word, I pray that we would learn that you would, that you would make any false saying or incorrect statement be forgotten soon, but that you would convict us and give us ears to hear what you have for each one of us. The Spirit knows where each of us are. I pray that you would help us and the teachers and students downstairs too, to hear your word and to be doers of it. 
uh, and that this would bring you honor. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Lots here. Lots here. And we won't cover it all. Full disclosure. If you leave with more questions and answers, that will be a... Victory, really. Paul's concerned for the Thessalonians, and he's trying to ensure that they are not, verse 2, quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Other translations have unsettled, troubled, disturbed, upset. If you can think about the last time that you received a piece of information that had this kind of effect on you, this disorienting effect kind of disturbing, gives you the iggly wigglies, more than just bad news, it gets under your skin. You can't shake it. I can think of one example almost a year ago of this. Uh, when I heard about Ravi Zacharias's abuse, you remember this? Maybe some, some of you are going to experience this moment now. Um, I actually remember, I, Ben, we were in the car driving up from the Quad Cities. You remember this? So Ravi Zacharias, I loved Ravi Zacharias' ministry for years. Some of you know him, probably many. Wrote many helpful books, Christian apologists. Loved the way he interacted with other worldviews. Was thankful for his public influence. As a Christian, almost two years ago, he passed away. And then in the months following, these stories start breaking that he'd abused uh, women. And so at first, I think what most people think, which is this real? Are these accusations real? Um, sometimes they are. Sometimes they aren't. Good to be skeptical. Uh, but it didn't take long for people to investigate. His own organization investigates. And they find out that not only were the accusations real, but it was like 10 times worse than the accusations. They dug up tons of stuff, tons of stuff, years of hidden Sin, sexual immorality, abuse of women. And I remember this feeling, this no way feeling, right? And it's not that, like you, 
I know that people are sinners, that we're all capable of a variety of sins, no one's above sin, but I just didn't think that he would do something like that, right? So I had an understanding, I had an understanding of how the world worked, and I was shaken in mind, uh, which was not an unreasonable response, I don't think. I'd like to think that if you heard that I or one of the other elders here, you found something like that out, I'd like to think you'd be shocked and disoriented, right? So I don't think it's unreasonable um, for us to feel that way, but it's still, I couldn't shake it for days, for days. And maybe that's happened to you. I think it's especially, it's especially disturbing when you find out the people who you, who you viewed as having high character that this happens to. People depart from the faith who seemed like they were the real deal, right? Uh, it makes it especially hard. So, the Thessalonians had an understanding of how the day of the Lord was going to happen and what it would look like. That understanding is being challenged to the extent that they're in danger of this kind of debilitating disorientation. So, what was the misunderstanding? Well, they thought, as it said in verse 2 at the end, they thought the day of the Lord had come. So, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, is this phrase... That, in my view, and in, in many others, refers to this span of time, not this one event, but this span of time in which Jesus is going to execute justice and, and rule in a just way on earth. Okay? So various views abound about the details around this topic. Um, but I think most agree this makes most sense of the scriptures, that this isn't a reference to a literal 24-hour day or even one specific day or week or small period of time. It's this era in which God is going to unfold this plan of justice through Christ. And this is going to include events that you have probably heard of before, like the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming and Armageddon and the millennial kingdom. You don't need to know what all those things mean. Those are all part of this end times package that spans hundreds of years that's the day of the Lord, that that span, okay? Now, the day of the Lord is a future event, still is a future event. We're not living in the day of the Lord. The Thessalonians were not living in the day of the Lord, but they thought they might be. They thought they might be, and this is the source of their concern and why, and why they're on the brink of, of being shaken in mind like Paul's worried about. Paul had taught them previously, we see, about these events. In fact, Paul had taught them more than he teaches us through these letters. When Paul says, you remember what I told you, and we're like, no, we weren't there, Paul, please tell us. But he doesn't, right? He doesn't. Because they were there. So, if you were here for 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, those passages are the best we have that kind of explain how it works, but he had taught them in person even more, even more. And that's why in verse 5 he says, don't you remember I told you these things? So they've received teaching on it, but since then they've become confused. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First, they're being persecuted. We've seen this in our study of this book. Not a unique experience among first century Christians. In fact, not really that unusual for Christians since then in most parts of the world. We are the exception 
by a long shot, not the rule. It's hard for us to even find a point of reference for the kinds of persecutions that these believers are going through. But they're being persecuted. They're being persecuted, which is a characteristic of the day of the Lord, part of it, that Christians are going to be persecuted uh, by the way things unfold. Second, in addition to the persecution, there's this deception circulating in the Thessalonian church. Verse 2 refers to three things. Spirits, spoken words, or letters that apparently were sending mixed messages about what Paul had taught. So the spirits here, I think meaning probably not demonic spirits, but probably teachings, prophecies that may or may not have been true. This is why John says in 1 John 4, test the spirits. He's not talking about demons there. He's saying people are going to teach and they're going to prophesy. You test those things, test those spirits. Spoken words, probably persuasive arguments in the Thessalonian church about how it could work, right? How what we're living through now fits all the puzzle pieces. And then he mentions letters seeming to be from us, which I guess means we think there were actual forged letters circulating. People wrote fake letters, faked Paul's signature, in a manner of speaking, and were sending it around. And these letters would say, I know I told you this before, but what I actually meant was, was this, and people are confused. Newfangled ideas seem like they may be credible. They're not credible. Paul does not want the Thessalonians wasting time on these things. Or worse, freaking out about these things. Uh, which we say, and should say, the same today about people who think they've figured it all out, right? You know, you've read these things, you've heard these things. People who know the day that the rapture's gonna happen. Or people who've put all the puzzle pieces together of, you know, modern, modern news and current events. Therefore, this is exactly what's going on, and we know exactly how it's going to happen. There were 88 reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988. That book is still on Amazon, by the way. I don't think, and not being published, but you know, you can get it on eBay. Probably you have to pay a ton of money. There were 88 reasons. Lucky for the author, those 88 rolled real nicely into 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1989. I was 10 years old at Y2K, and even I remember the end of the world. Jesus is coming back January 1st, 2000, of course. Um, so this speculation, this speculation always abounds, always will, always will, until it actually happens, right? One generation will be right about it. Um, and I think the encouragement is the same. Don't waste your time on these things. Don't waste your time on these things. Not because these people are necessarily deceivers. I don't think everybody who thinks those things are out to deceive people. It's anything from harmless speculation to, uh, to unknowing ignorance to deceitful people who are trying to make money off of it or whatever. Not all are that way, certainly, though. The point being, don't let your mind be swallowed up with those things. Don't let them be swallowed up. Okay, We have the scriptures, which tell us what we know we need to know about it. And so, study the scriptures. It's amazing the correlation between people who think they have figured the end times out and their lack of knowledge about what the scripture says about the end times. It's very, very common. Okay, So, study the scriptures instead, and that includes this passage. So, 
In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul's going to go on to set the story straight. In verse 3 and following, about the day of the Lord. And he's going to talk about a couple specific things, not the whole thing, of course. But he's going to explain why it has definitely not come, and they don't need to think that it has. So, verse 3, verse 3. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed... The son of destruction. Now read that verse again because this is, this is pretty much the key. That day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless, excuse me, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And now Paul is going to describe this man of lawlessness in verse 5, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, as the Thessalonians... I am, my mouth is getting tired of saying Thessalonians. As the Thessalonians hear those words in verse 5, that might sound new to us, they think of Daniel 11, 36 and 37, which, which say this. Daniel's talking about, he's prophesying, and he's talking about this man who's going to come in the future and terrorize uh, the world. And this man's called the king of the north in Daniel chapter 11. And here's what Daniel says in Daniel 11. You'll see the correlation. He shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods, capital G, God of gods. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, He shall pay no attention to any other God. He shall magnify himself above all. So with that education in mind, Paul describes this man of lawlessness in verse 5. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaims himself to be God, and they make this connection. This is the person that in Christian teaching we call the Antichrist. We take passages from Thessalonians and Daniel and Revelation and a few other places, and there's this person we call the Antichrists. The Bible talks about this person coming during the day of the Lord. He's not a good person. Look at how Paul describes his rise to power. This is verses 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, the king of the north, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, his coming is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. So the Antichrist is not going to be a hack like we normally talk about hacks. In other words, he's not a faker or a weakling. He's actually energized by Satan himself to perform miracles, do wondrous things. Paul calls them false signs and wonders. That does not meaning they won't look like signs and wonders, but meaning they won't come from the true source of signs and wonders. He'll do things not unlike the things that God gives people the power to do in the Bible and not unlike the things that Jesus did while he was on earth. Hence the deception, the effectiveness of the deception. Now, as you think through that word, as you heard me say that word, and you think through this word, antichrist, there's probably 
probably a lot of stuff comes to mind. Most of us have a lot of baggage about this word just because of what we've read or seen or been taught. Hopefully one verse that comes to mind is from 1 John 2. Okay, In 1 John 2, I'm going to read these verses. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. John is addressing the same problem in his audience that Paul is addressing with the Thessalonians. In 1 John 2.26, this is what Paul says, or what John says, rather. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Same problem. His readers are on the brink of deception. Verse 18 says this. This is 1 John 2. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Okay, now let me pause there. Two comments. One, the last hour is a reference to the entire span of time between Christ and the day of the Lord, right? It was the last hour 2,000 years ago when John wrote this. He says it's the last hour. It's still the last hour today. It's not a literal hour. It's not like the very end before the rapture. It's the whole thing. Okay? Second thing to note, we see this word antichrist, and this is what is really worth noticing, used in two ways. One is the antichrist, which is the person we've been talking about, but then there's there are these many antichrists, plural, which refers more generally, really, to anyone who is against Christ in their teaching, and especially those who deceive others to draw them away from Christ. And in this same passage, verses 21 through 23, say this, I write to you, (coughs) excuse me, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Now here, listen to this. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Okay, so the relevant thing to notice is that one of the key features of false teachers throughout the entire church age, the entire last hour or later times, is that... The false teachers, antichrists, there are many of them all the time, and ultimately the false teacher, the antichrist, capital A, is what they believe about Jesus. That's the key. That's the key. This is why it's always a good reminder not to, not to make second things first things, right? So you hear people disagree on something like how to do church service or music, right? And if they get real crazy, they start calling people who oppose them false teachers, right? Well, listen, the key feature of a false teacher, of an antichrist and the antichrist, is what they think about Jesus, okay? We disagree on a whole bunch of stuff. We disagree on Jesus, we can't really be in the same church family together. His blood is what makes us family. That's that's the deal breaker. Anyway, anyway, off the bunny trail. Back to 2 Thessalonians 2. You see this Antichrist described as someone who cannot stand the idea of sharing loyalty. Watch how he fits this bill. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, comes to power through the activity of Satan. And he can't stand that any other God, let alone Jesus, 
would receive worship instead of him. He's jealous. He's not a polytheist. Antichrist will not be okay with being one among many gods that people worship. He wants the whole thing, which is the same thing that Jesus wants. Sounds familiar, right? Our God is a jealous God, too. We'll compare more later. He denies that Jesus is the Christ and will not share any, he will not share the throne with anyone. And this is why the most significant showdown in human history is going to be during the day of the Lord when the Christ and the Antichrist confront one another. Okay? The confrontation will be not figurative, a literal confrontation between humans with flesh on their bones. Our passage speaks of this confrontation and other things that will come before it. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. He's mentioned the Antichrist. You kind of have an idea of that person now in mind and how he comes to power. And he says in verse 6, And you know what is restraining him, him being the Antichrist. You know what is restraining the Antichrist now so that he, the Antichrist, may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And other parts of the Bible really talk about that battle in much more detail. More so here than just mentioning that Jesus is going to kill this guy. Uh, these verses talk about a restraining or a holding back of the Antichrist and a revealing of the Antichrist, both of which happen before Christ's confrontation with him. Okay, so let's consider these two things. First, this restraining. Verse 6 says something refers to what is now restraining. Now, what is now, neuter, makes it sound like a thing. A thing is restraining. But then in verse 7, Paul refers to he who now restrains, which makes it sound like a person is doing the restraining. And that combination, doggone it, makes figuring out who this restrainer is incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. If you read and study this, as I have read many commentaries about this, you can sum up the view about the identity with, we don't really have any idea. Any, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say it that way. That's way too strong. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. Options include the Holy Spirit, the church, the moral conscience God has given man, law and order in our worlds. There are many others or a combination of those things, okay? Now, I assure you, there are problems with each one of those views. Some sound like they make more sense than others. Maybe you've been taught one or the other more, but there's problems with each. If I had to, if I had to pick one, I wouldn't write the book on this, but I'd say that it's not the Holy Spirit, because the idea that the Holy Spirit would go away and not be present working, especially when people are being saved and coming to Christ during the day, during the tribulation, is too much. But perhaps a particular ministry 
of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. So Jesus says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit's ministry on earth is going to include convicting men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's one of the things he does. I suspect the Holy Spirit will stop doing that at at some point. That that's a restraining force and that the world then, when he does stop doing that, will devolve into um, the days of Noah. Evil all the time, everywhere, no matter what, by everyone, except for Noah and his family. And that's what, that's the kind of world we read about at the end of the tribulation, if not worse. So, I think that particular ministry of the Spirit could be the current restraining upon the work of the Antichrist. But even, even that, hear me, that is not an airtight argument, okay? Study it yourself, please. Um, it's worthy of discussion. Okay. The point seems to be the Antichrist will not be able to do all the evil that he wants to do until this restraining force is removed both from the Antichrist directly, probably, and from the world, the world at large. Once the restrainer is removed, the Antichrist will be seen for what he really is. This is the revealing. So, the restraining and revealing refer to this one point, I think, where the restrainer says no more and the Antichrist has more or less free reign and people begin to see his true nature. So the revealing of the Antichrist is not, I don't think, that people aren't going to know who this guy is and that all of a sudden it's going to be like, here comes someone from behind the scenes who jumps up and says, surprise, I'm in charge. He will rise to power. People aren't going to hate him, though. He's going to achieve global stability, peace. He's going to be murdering Christians. But people are, are not going to think poorly of him. The restrainer leaves. He breaks his treaties, starts doing crazy stuff, starts sitting in the temple and saying, I'm God, and people see. Right? He's revealed. He's revealed after being an otherwise beloved beloved leader. And then the last segment of the tribulation is a time when he he has he has free reign to say the least. All the wickedness and evil you can imagine. Now, these things, this restraining and revealing event is is really Paul's main point. The concern is the Thessalonians thought they were living in the day of the Lord. That's the problem. Paul's correction my wife asked me yesterday, so what's the main point of the passage? The main point is this. If you were living in the day of the Lord, you'd know it. That's the point. That's the point. There would be no doubt whatsoever. And if you study the day of the Lord, lots in Daniel, Revelation, you're going to see there are things going on that the scripture says every single person on the planet will see these things because they're that jacked up. Or that miraculous. The, the evil of the Antichrist will be so ridiculous, so ridiculous that there are not going to be debates about whether he's the Antichrist or not. You understand? That's what Paul's saying. The point at which you need to know who the Antichrist is, you will absolutely know. You will absolutely know. And that's not happening right now, Thessalonians. It's just not. So, you can cool down. You can cool down. Now he goes on to say in the last few verses, there's, there's a lot here. 
He goes on to say, as Paul always does about the day of the Lord, he gives this assurance that it's not going to be out of God's control. Look at verses 9 through 12. And we see this, we see this in other passages, this combination of human responsibility and God's sovereignty working together. They're almost always present together. Verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. This is where it gets interesting because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There's human responsibility, human choice. We go on, though. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. There's God's sovereignty, God's sovereign hand. We keep going. So that they may believe what is false. They may choose to believe what is false, right? So, human choice, again. In order that... All may be condemned, and here comes God's sovereignty again, with condemnation. The purpose of his doing this is so he can condemn them. All may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Back to human choice. They're both there. The picture is God allowing these natural causes of sin to take effect until he decides it's time to step in and judge. So you remember, for example, the Canaanites in the Old Testament. The Canaanites live in all of their wickedness from, yeah, long list of terrible things, throwing kids on a fire and burning them alive to sacrifice to the gods is the tip of the iceberg, right? To give you a flavor, God allows this for 400 years. 400 years. And of course, a society like that is going to become terrible. It's a terrible culture. Eventually, God says, time's up. And can rightfully condemn them for for the depravity that he allowed them to fall into. He allowed them to fulfill their unrighteousness so that he could righteously condemn them. So, all that to say, we've seen this kind of thing, this kind of thing before. Okay? And in this case, in the case of what Paul's talking about in Thessalonians, people refuse the gospel, they have pleasure in unrighteousness. Eventually, God the Son is going to be the one to return and say, time's up, and unleash his judgment on every every rapist and murderer and molester and everything else you can imagine will be judged rightfully. Human history will end with events that serve to hold humans accountable for their choices and and show God's sovereign hand in unfolding this plan. Now, I've talked about a lot of the darker parts of the day of the Lord. There's a lot of great, happy parts in the day of the Lord, too. It's a big span of time. Let me return, though, as we as we wind down to my opening question. You remember my illustration? How you feel about this, this whole thing, this day of the Lord thing, um, it's graphic, it's not fun, it's not fun. How do you feel about it as you're sitting here being reminded of it? Now, my opening illustration, I asked you, what are, what were the, the 30 or so students feeling as they were sitting there waiting to see what I would do to judge these five scoundrels in class? Um, were they excited? Maybe a few of them. 
Good kids do not like when bad kids ruin their education. That's for sure. Maybe a few of them. Maybe a few of them. Uh, I wouldn't use that word for most of them, though. I wouldn't use the word happy either. Uh, they certainly weren't scared or terrified. I mean, I was a human judge, so maybe they were freaking out that somehow their name got on the list and I messed up somehow. Um, I don't think that was the case for most of them, but I think, I think they were anticipating, they had a hopeful anticipation that justice was going to be served to these classmates. Everybody loves justice. Judgment is the part that we don't, that we like to turn our eyes on. Everybody likes justice though. They had to sit through these students doing this. They want to see, they want to see that fairness exists in this class, right? That's what they want to see. So I wouldn't use the word happiness or excitement to describe it, but there's a satisfaction that comes when they see that that takes place. So, as I said, the analogy, the analogy breaks down, but I think, I think this kind of gets at how you're supposed to feel about what's coming. Of course, I trust, I trust that you've accepted Christ, and that Christ is not coming to judge you for your wickedness, because He was judged for your wickedness on the cross. I trust that's true, and if it is the case, then you're the ones waiting with hopeful anticipation for these things to happen. For this wickedness to be to be judged, so that justice can endure, as the Scripture says it will. And beyond that, beyond that, we yearn for that justice because they're opponents of Christ, and so we remember our Savior. He's the only one qualified for dispensing the justice. Christ and the Antichrist, as I said, share some things in common. They both claim to be qualified. They both claim deity and power. They both ask for worship. They both want your loyalty and devotion. Neither of them are okay with just part of your heart. They both want the whole thing. The difference, of course, is that while the Antichrist claims power, Christ has it. He created the universe. He sustains it. I don't yearn to be a husband. I am a husband. If you started making fun of me because I'm not a husband, it wouldn't get to me at all. It doesn't trouble me. I know I'm a husband. Christ is not troubled by this. He conquered death. The Antichrist asks for worship. Christ is actually worthy of the worship that he asks for. All will bow down before the lamb that was slain and the conquering king. The Antichrist wants your loyalty for his own good and satisfaction. Christ wants your loyalty because he wants you to be satisfied in him. You are the object of his love before he can become the object of yours. The Antichrist wants your entire heart to fuel his pride and manipulate you into some twisted version of self-fulfillment. Christ wants your entire heart, no questions asked, so that he can change you and give you actual life and joy and peace in the world. They both want it. One is worthy of it, and that's whose hands we entrust this day that is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are and what you have done. Thank you for the promise of the day of the Lord. Despite murky details, we, we know enough to know you will judge. We know 
that this Antichrist will rise, that it will be very evident what is going on to everybody, uh, but that you will, you will come back to kill him. We look forward to that with hopeful anticipation, and we pray that you would help us to live in confidence in light of that. In Christ's name, amen.